All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We're going to continue in our study of Romans, um, finding out the essentials of Christianity as Paul lays it out. And today we're going to be talking about being righteous but not right. And um, if you have been following along, you know that, that what is happening in the, in the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans is he is explaining the gospel up through the Christian life. And so we're more on the Christian life part than we are on the gospel part now, but it, it all is kind of woven in there. And so we're going to be talking about what it means to be righteous but not yet right. Um, so it has been said... Um, that you never hear pastors of the largest churches in America talk about sin. And in a way, that is true, because there's a, a lot of things that uh, the world now accepts and receives and even affirms that the Bible does not. And there are, there are definitely areas or zones within society that many American pastors of the large churches today that's very popular, they don't reach out and talk about those particular issues. But they tend to talk about sin in some way. Uh, many of these pastors will tell their congregations to live better lives. They'll, they'll be more like motivational speakers. And so in, in a certain uh, context, you come to the church and they will tell you, you know, whatever your struggle is, whatever you're doing that you feel is wrong because they're a where people are acutely sensitive to their own sins. We know what we're doing wrong. Somewhere deep inside, we all are aware of the things that, what, that we do that don't line up with God's Word. And I say that is true of both believers and non-believers. I believe that we know good from wrong. I believe that that is inherent in us. The Bible tells us that it is built into us to know what is right and what is wrong. And you can look at it just from a purely... Um, uh, historical uh, standpoint, it's more anthropology, but you can look at the idea that throughout history, humans have always been writing laws. We've always been doing that. And so if, if you go out of the Middle East where you know that, that God was speaking the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, you go way out of there, you still find laws against things like murder. You still find laws against things like stealing and adultery and, and things that, that are harmful to all of society. You find that those laws are written no matter where you go throughout history. And so what I would suggest to you is that we have inherently known what is right and wrong. And so these kind of more modern-day preachers, they know that people are struggling with their sin, not meaning that they're fighting against it, but they simply don't know what to do about it. And so what a lot of these pastors will do is what's called moralism, in which they will tell you to do a little better, try a little harder this week, do a little bit more this week, and you will feel better and you will be better if you just take that one more step. But let me tell you that moralism without the gospel is wrong. In fact, it's actually evil and it is hating your audience. Because here's the reality. There is nothing that we can personally do, even about our behavior. Before we're saved, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. We are forced to do things that we do not want to do. And in this passage, we're going to see that even once we're saved, there are, there are, there are very strong powers drawing us to do things that we do not want to do. And so if you teach, be better this week than you were last week, but you don't say anything about the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ in your life, then you are only 
hating and causing evil into these people's lives because what happens is they realize later, hey, I can't do this. I can't be better. I can't break this pattern of sin in my life. I can't do something that, that, that goes against the very nature of who I am. And so then they want to wash their hands of church and Jesus and the whole thing because they don't see a, a way, they don't see an answer, they don't see the truth. But see, the problem with that kind of preaching is the Bible gives us the answer. It gives us a path to where we actually can live a better life. But it's not us being better. It is God working through us to make us better. And so that is the idea that Paul is going to present to us this morning, is that we can be better if we depend on the responsibility, I mean, if we depend on the message of, of God himself. That's where it comes in. And it's the responsibility of the church to proclaim that message. So we know that believers must not sin. But why do we still struggle with sinful desires? We know that when believers, specifically believers, religious leaders, people that, that have this major platform, when they fall, when they sin, when they struggle with sin, we know that that is harmful. Um, we know that that leads others to think that there is nothing real and, and no actual substance to Christianity. Why do we still struggle with sin? What, what is, why is there still power of sin in our lives? We've studied over the last couple of weeks what sin is. So uh, Paul spends the first three chapters telling us that we're sinful, as if we didn't know. But he tells us we are sinful. Then he explains that Jesus came to this earth, died for our sins. He paid the price for our sins. And Paul says the way that we receive the benefit of that death is through faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. When we believe in him, believe in the work that he's done, and that God is going to use that work to forgive us, then we are saved. The Bible uses a word mean, say, that, say, that is justified. And that is where God literally goes into the legal record of all of our sins and wipes them out and declares that we have obeyed the law it, it, all of its demands. That's what justified means. And so our legal standing before God in the courtroom of heaven, he has declared that we are innocent, okay? But when we live the, our lives on this earth, even after we're saved, we still struggle with sin. And so that's what pretty much the rest of Romans deals with is the fact that, yes, we're still going to be struggling with sin. Should we be okay with sin? Absolutely not. The Bible has told us that. Should we go on sinning because we've already been forgiven and it doesn't matter? Paul's already dealt with that. He says that we have died to sin. We are, that means that, that we no longer are forced to sin. It's no longer, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now free to live for God. But Christians are going to have to, to fight battles against temptation. We always will. And remember, if Jesus had to fight a battle against temptation, and that's recorded in the Gospels, that he was taken away and he was tempted by Satan, then we're going to have to fight temptation as well as part of our Christian life. But how do we do it? Where does the power come from? And, you know, what does it mean for us? And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning in, in Romans chapter 7. So, we are already saved, um, but not yet completely conformed to the image of Christ. So we have a struggle against sin for the rest of our, early, our, our earthly lives. So that's what salvation is for the Christian already, but not yet. Already we're saved. If you were to die today as a Christian, you would go to heaven. God would declare you righteous. But while you're on this earth, you are not yet perfect. He has not remade you completely into the image of Christ. He has not made you like Jesus yet. 
but he's going to. He's working towards that end. And so we're going to have to fight that fight on our own, but we will not do it without his power. And so that's what this message is going to be about, is seeing how God empowers us to fight that fight. So the sermon in a sentence is this. Not only did Jesus save us from the penalty of our sins, but he also began a renewing process in our lives that will conform our desires to the desires of God for our lives. So let's read this passage and and see what we can get from it, and then we'll go through, um, and I've got a few comments about some things. Um, So beginning in in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law (coughs) waging war against Um, against the law of, of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now this is one of those passages that people do tend to have a little bit of trouble understanding, um, simply because Paul says so much about what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do, and and it gets a little difficult for people to follow. So uh, I've broken it up into three parts. I'm going to do my very best to make it simple, what he's actually saying and what we need to do about what we find here in Scripture. First of all, um, he makes the statement in the first six verses that we are free from the law. Um, so he, makes, he reminds his readers of this because they should know this. He says, you know about the law. And so let me remind you of this. And if you've been following along for the last six chapters, he's told us this already, that we are free from the law. The law is for the living, and it is only binding so long as we live. And so we've already covered the fact that uh, when we are saved, we became one with uh, the death of Jesus, meaning that we died to the law. That's what the Bible teaches us, is, is that when we uh, identify with Jesus, so we talked about baptism a couple of weeks ago, we talked about baptism and what that symbolizes, and when, when you go into the water, when you go into the water, it is, a symbol, it is symbolizing the fact that we go into the grave with Jesus. When we come out of the water, it is symbolizing that we come out of that grave into a new life. We walk with newness of life. We're a new creature, a new creation. And so that's what Paul has already taught. And so he's reminding them, hey, you know this, right? You know that when you die to the law, the law isn't binding to you anymore. And he uses the example of a marriage contract here, the first couple of verses, to explain that laws are only binding to the living. So he talks about marriage and he says that if a person's spouse dies, and he uses the example of a woman, but it it could definitely be reversed to a man. Um, Either way, if a person's spouse dies... They're no, no, no longer married to that person. That was a living covenant. That was a living contract with that person. When that person dies, they are free then to go and marry someone else. Uh, but if while the, the spouse is living, they go off and live with somebody else, then that makes them an adulterer. That makes them a breaker of that law. That law is binding so long as the other person lives. That's the example that he is, is setting there. And so um, when you break a law, you become a lawbreaker. That's kind of the statement that he's making. Um, But that goes to show that when we were baptized into the death of Christ, we were made free uh, to be bound to him instead of the law. So immediately this makes you ask the question, so that means that the law, the Old Testament law doesn't apply, we should just get rid of it and not follow it? No, that's not what it means. What Paul is doing is introducing a new way to follow God, a new way to obey God. And so let's kind of open that up. When we were lost... It was like we were married to the law, and the only fruit of that union was sin and death. When we were, before we came to know Jesus as our Savior, we were married to the law. We were bound to the law. Problem is, we kept breaking the law. We continuously broke the law, and so the only thing we got from that was death. Remember, Romans chapter 6 closes with this verse, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only thing you ever get out of sin, the long-term gift you get from sin is death. That's what you get. And so that's what he's saying is that when we were lost, we were living as if we were married to the law, but we kept breaking the law. And so that was giving us only death. But now he says we have died to the law. So we are free to be with another, free to marry another. It's like we're married to Jesus. Uh, The fruit of this union is righteousness and eternal life. So the same relationship that we had to the law before we were saved, that, that it was the authority over us, that it dictated how we should live, is the same authority that Jesus has over us now. 
He is the authority over us. He dictates how we should live. And so that is, that is the way that it goes, and that's how the power changed. When we were lost, the power of our flesh drove us to sinful actions that led us to death. That's just the way of it. And, and here's the thing that, that Paul keeps explaining, is that when we are not believers, we don't have the ability even to resist sin. So I know that many, many of us have watched the news. We've seen some of the horrible things that, that happened this week, and, we, and we've seen kind of the aftermath of that. And as a, as a, as a person that, that's, that's thinking, you might say, how can God let this happen? How can people do this? How does someone get to this point in their lives? You might ask all those questions, but let me tell you what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying that we have a sin nature. From the very beginning, deep down in our hearts, we are sinful. He goes on a little bit later to say there's nothing good in me. There's only evil in me. And so that's how we get there. We start there. We're born that way. You know, one of the interesting things that I hear people say all the time is follow your heart, follow your heart, listen to your heart. I hear people saying that all the time. But if you recall, the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. And so instead of listening to your heart, you should speak to your heart. And you know what you should tell your heart to say many times? Shut up. You're leading me astray. You're leading me into sin. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the Word of God. The Word of God is the way that we live. What we listen to in our heart is always going to lead us down the wrong path. Listen to the Word of God. Let Him speak to you, and then we can follow uh, His leadership instead of our own twisted idea of good and bad. So, now that we are saved, we have been freed from the law, we're able to serve God in a new way. That's what Paul's presenting here. So instead of a mechanical obedience to a set of guidelines, we can follow the Spirit of God in loving obedience. So it's like this. Since Paul used the example of marriage, I'll use the example of marriage. So it's, it's like this. If, if as a husband, I'm married, if I was to find a book that told me how you're supposed to love your wife, and I said, you know what, this will make things a lot easier. And so I opened the book. In chapter 1, it says, give her roses once a month. And so I said, oh, okay, that's how you're supposed to do that. So I went out once a month. I set up a standing order with a florist, and I get roses, and I give her roses once every month. Um, you know, she's going to appreciate that. She's going to like that. That's going to be something that makes her feel special. And then in chapter 2, it says, spontaneously wash the dishes sometimes without being asked. And I read that and I say, oh, ooh, that's harder than roses. Okay, so I'll do that. And so once a week, I just jump up from the dinner table and I wash dishes and I do, do all that. And, and, you know, that's just kind of a surprise and it's something that definitely she would appreciate. And then, and then I read a little bit further and it says, take her on a vacation more than once a decade. That's maybe really aimed at me. And so I read that and I'm like, oh, okay, so I got to take her on vacations. Got to take her on trips. Let her go to nice places, those kinds of things. And so I keep reading in this book and every chapter is just a home run. It's just a great idea. Everything I do is wonderful and I'm following this book and, and it's telling me everything to do. And then one day I accidentally leave this book on the nightstand and she looks at this book and she sees this book and she sees that I've been following this book step by step. When to buy roses, when to wash dishes, when to take her on a vacation, when to buy her nice things, and all that kind of stuff. So although she appreciated the way that she was being treated, do you think at that point my wife thinks that I love her or that I'm following a recipe, following a, a set of commands or, or, or suggestions and just kind of going down the list? What I mean to say is that when you are in a loving relationship with a person, you know how to show them love. You know how to love them. You know how to treat them. You know what you're supposed to do. Now, you can be inspired by other things from time to time, and that's a lot different than following a checklist and doing exactly what you're told to do. And so that is the way that Paul is describing that we now live for God. In the old way, there was a law, 
And it was a checklist of things that we had to do, things that we could never do. If we, may, you know, if we, if we did something we weren't supposed to do, there were, there were laws regarding what we were supposed to do to kind of get back right with God. There were sacrifices that were supposed to be made. It was all a rigid obedience to a written code. That's how people had to follow God. But when Jesus comes along, he, he introduces us to a new way to live with God. Instead of just adherence to the written code, he introduces us to a relationship with the living God. And that relationship is based on love. Remember what we were taught back in, in Romans chapter 5. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so he has shown his love and his love was a sacrificial love. And so when we enter into that relationship with him, he loves us, we're going to love him. And so the way that we obey him, the way that we follow him is love. Does that mean that we disregard the law? No. That means that we're going to be keeping the law, not by accident, but without even putting an effort into keeping the law. We're going to be keeping the law because we're loving God and living that love out in our lives. And so that is what it means to be freed from the law. We don't have to go step by step through the law, watching for all the different things on the checklist and making sure that we do them. It's just like a marriage relationship. You could make yourself a checklist and you could do certain things. And, and yes, that might be good for a while. But when it's discovered that you're just following a list, you're not acting from the heart, then it's going to be a problem. And the reality is when we live for God because we love Him, we're going to be obedient to the law anyway. But not because we were trying to be obedient to the law because we were afraid of punishment. Not to steal thunder from next week, but Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yes, we're going to make mistakes, but we are no longer going to be condemned because we are Christians. We have been saved. So... When we make mistakes, we're not expecting God to judge us and drop the hammer on us. We're expecting for that relationship to be restored and for us to continue living in a loving relationship with God. That's what it means to be freed from the law. And so that's what Paul is presenting to us, is that we will love God and that will come naturally to us. When we are saved, our relationship with God is no longer about the law. Instead, it is about a loving relationship. Also, he has demonstrated his love for us, and we will know how to demonstrate our love for him. He gave a sacrifice, and so we are going to sacrifice things as well. We are going to sacrifice maybe some popularity in this world. We might even sacrifice some friendships and relationships in this world. We will sacrifice time. We will sacrifice our talent. We will make significant sacrifices in this world, but it's not so that we follow a code or try to pay God back for the death of Jesus, it's because we love him and we're willing to go wherever he tells us, we're willing to do whatever he tells us to do. And the Spirit of God will show us what to do. And this is what the Bible means when it says that we are, tells us we are to walk in the Spirit. Instead of listening to the laws, they're not bad, they're not wrong, they're not evil, and they're not out of date. But instead of listening to the laws, we're listening to the Spirit. And so the Spirit leads us into the paths that we're supposed to go, to do the things that we're supposed to do. We are serving God from the love in our hearts according to the direction that the Spirit leads. So that's what it means to be free from the law. So that's the first six verses, not so bad. Let's look at the next little bit here uh, and talk about for a minute the deception of sin. Um, so <clears throat> starting in verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? The law... 
that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So what is sin? And, and what, what is its power in our lives? So he asks a question that he believes his opponents would ask. And again, I still believe that most of these opponents that Paul has faced in the past, they're pretty snarky. And so they're asking questions not because they mean those questions, but because they're trying to poke holes in his argument. That's what it seems like. And so he comes right out, he deals with the question, and he shows that there's no hole in this argument um, because the law itself... Although it is good, we have been freed from it. It is not sin. It is still the righteous word of God, but we just have a different relationship to it now. So we expect someone to say that the law has caused us to sin. The law must be sin itself. And, and Paul gives his, his classic answer to his own question that the law is sin by no means. Again, this is the strongest way to say no that he possibly can. Not ever under any circumstances could this be true. That might be a way that you translate that little passage. Um, so without the law, uh, he would not have known about sin and he would not have understood the evil things that he was doing. So what we have to understand is that sin is there. Whether there's a law against it or not, sin is there. And the proof that we have of this, we can look at the early chapters of Genesis. God had not given laws, yet he still declared that what people were doing was sinful. He said that it was evil, it was wrong. He sent the flood. And so what we can understand from that, what we can gather from that is that sin was there, but people didn't understand it the way that they should. They didn't understand the, the power of sin. So, for example, the law taught Paul what it meant to covet. Now, we know, uh, because we have had the opportunity to go from child to adult, we know that long before we understood what coveting was, we were good at it. We have been good at coveting for a very long time. When one child has a toy, and you see another child identify that as a toy, that child immediately wants that toy, right? It's just natural. That's part of our nature. We are good at coveting. We are skilled at it. So Paul didn't understand it to be a sin until it was explained to him that it was a sin. And that is, that is what he means by this conversation here. So once he learned that lesson, his sin nature took over, causing him to covet in all kinds of ways. I grew up watching cartoons. And one thing I noticed about cartoons was if you tell a cartoon character not to do something, that's exactly what they're going to go do. And I think that's based off of humanity because if you tell us not to do something, all of a sudden that's exactly what we want to do. That cake is for tomorrow. Don't eat it. Don't even touch the icing and see if it's good. That cake is for tomorrow. If that cake had sat in the refrigerator and, and I'd have never saw it, I'd have never wanted it. But you know what I want as soon as I'm told that? I want a piece of cake. That's just our nature. Once it's forbidden, once it's off the table, that's what we want, and that's what we have to recognize. Um, so even though God gave the law in love, it brought death and condemnation to everyone because we can't keep it. We can't keep God's law. The Israelites proved that over and over again. They could not keep the whole law of God. They were lawbreakers, and they needed a Savior, and so God sent Jesus to be the Savior. The very thing uh, that the law was to teach us, it was to teach us how to live. Uh, but it is the very thing that condemns us to death because the law comes with consequences. Not only um, is the law what we can and cannot do, but it also carries with it the understanding of penalty. What is the penalty for breaking this law? And so it condemns us as well. So it's not, just, uh, it's not because the law is evil, but because sin is incredibly deceptive. Okay, so when God gave his law to the Israelites, he also made it clear what the punishment would be for those who broke the law. So we might say, well, the Israelites had the law, but they continued sinning. Why? 
Well, it isn't because they didn't know, because God gave them very clear instructions of what would happen if they sinned. And so, what we see is that they did not care about the consequences. They knew exactly what would happen if they broke the law, but they broke it anyway. You know, this is, this is not because they didn't care about the consequences of breaking the law. It's because sin is so deceptive that it can convince us to do something even though we know it's harmful to us. You know... That starts really sounding modern in that moment. So you're talking about the Old Testament, you're talking about Israelites receiving a law, knowing that if they broke this law, it would break the covenant, but they broke it anyway. That begins to sound very modern. This is why, for example, people will put substances in their body, even though they know it will cause them to become unhealthy. We do that. We do that all the time. Obviously, it sounds like I'm talking about drug use or something like that, um, but do we not eat foods that we know are unhealthy? Do we not eat foods that we know are not good for us? I hope nobody in here owns stock in McDonald's, but I'm telling you, those McDonald's hamburgers aren't good for you. They will lead you to be unhealthy. So maybe don't go there. Um, but we do that anyway because we, we want to. Uh, this is why people have adulterous affairs, even though they know that it will destroy their marriage and their family. It never ends well. It never ends in a purity way. It always ends ugly, but people do it anyway. Because sin is so deceptive. It, it, it tells us that there's more pleasure now than there will be pain or punishment later. It is lying to us, but we believe that. It's why churches compromise on moral and uh, spiritual issues, even though they know that it will destroy their ability to minister in God's name. I could stand here and talk for a long time about what people out in the world do and how it doesn't make any sense. But you know, the church does the same thing. We, we do things. Churches compromise. Churches say things that aren't consistent with the Bible. They do things that aren't consistent with the Bible. And it destroys our ability to minister. The public opinion of the church right now is low. It is very, very low. We're doing Satan's work for him. When we sin, when we mislead people, when we are not faithful uh, to God, when we are not loving Him and obeying Him in loving obedience, we're doing the devil's work for it because all the devil needs to do is turn people away from Jesus. But we're doing it for him. We're doing it for him because people say, well, you're supposed to be a Christian, but you're doing this. Now, if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me I was supposed to be a Christian, that would, that would make me have several dollars anyway. But the reality is when we live publicly, we represent Jesus. Our sin is always public. The things that the church does and what it doesn't do, how we do what we do, one of the hot-button topics right now is abortion. And this church, we are very much pro-life. We believe in the, the idea that God forms us in the womb, and because of that, we don't believe that, that it is without consequence to take a life of someone that is living in the womb of a woman. We don't believe it is without consequence. We believe that that is murder. Now, what people will say is that the church believes that, but they don't believe that we should care for the child once they're born. Now, I've never heard a single Christian say that we don't care what happens after it's born so long as it's born. I've never heard a Christian say that. But the world has gotten that impression. And we need to make sure that we correct that. We need to make sure that we're showing them that we love people from birth to death, from conception to death, that we love people, that we care about them. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to be saved. We've got to make that clear. Because right now the world thinks that we don't care. The world thinks that we're trying to control someone else. No, we're just trying to provide an opportunity for life 
for those that otherwise would not receive that opportunity. That's what we believe. But when churches compromise on that and other things that are hot-button topics today, when churches won't come out and clearly state what they believe and what they expect uh, of their church members and, and, and what we're supposed to be doing, when we don't faithfully come out like that, we're doing the devil's work for him. We are doing the devil's work for him. And let us never be in a place where we do that. One of the most memorable things most people can still quote when Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. We must be about our Father's business. We should never do the devil's work for him. Sin's only desire is to destroy us. And we are so deceived by its power that we are willing to go along with that plan. The evil things that lurk in the shadows, the evil habits that we maintain on a daily basis, and everything in between, its only desire is to destroy us. But it is so deceptive it's so powerful. Even in the life of a Christian, it can deceive you. It can make you think that there's going to be some good that comes out of it. And so we follow along. But remember, always remember, sin is deceptive. It will trick you so that it can destroy you. Sin will use you until you are destroyed and then cast you away because the only thing left for you at that point is death. That's what sin's goal is. The law of God is holy and righteous and good, but it paints sin in its true light, revealing it for the deceptive power that it really is. And so is the law sin? No, it is the exact opposite. The law reveals sin. So at the beginning of this, I told you that moralistic preaching without sharing the gospel is evil. And the reason I say that is because if we just say right and wrong, right and wrong, be better, do better, become better, but we don't help people to understand where the power to become better really is, we're just setting them up for despair failure, and ultimately turning away from God altogether. And so what we have to do as, as Christians, as believers, is we have to show what the Word of God says and how it provides the power for life. You know, yes, we are still tempted to sin. Yes, we still have a sin nature, but God is turning that around in our lives through a loving relationship with Him. So the Word of God has always been telling the truth about sin, and until we do the same, we will never break the cycle. We've got to tell the truth about sin. We've got to say that it's deceptive. We've got to say that it's evil, that it leads to destruction. And you know, the, the reality is that's not going to be popular, but when has it ever been popular to tell people that they're wrong? When has it ever been popular to proclaim the truth of God? Everybody that's ever done it has pretty much been persecuted, and many of them have been persecuted to the point of death. And so it's still not going to be popular today. We live in the land of the free, but start telling people what is sin, and it won't be that free for us. Just be aware of that. So we will have friends and loved ones, or we all have friends and loved ones who are not Christians, and sometimes we might be tempted to wonder why they do the things that they do. Well, if you have a loved one that's not a Christian, there's going to be very little benefit for you to go up to them and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. This is wrong. That is wrong. You can correct them. You can fuss at them all you want to for what they are doing or what they're saying, but that's really not going to be very beneficial. What we need to tell them about is the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Until someone dies to sin, they will be dominated by it. And the only way for them to die to sin is to follow Jesus Christ. And so our message must be the gospel. Now, the gospel includes the fact that we're sinners. But it majors on the fact that Jesus died to pay the price for that sin. When we place our faith in him, we can be saved. And then we will have power over sin. So sin deceives us to the point that we are willing to destroy our own lives just for the momentary pleasure that it promises. And that is very, very true. 
the gospel is that Jesus died to save us from the penalty of sin and he rose again to lead us in new life with victory over sin. So that's what this last part about is our fight. So the gospel is that Jesus died to save us and he's going to lead us into a new life, a life where we can resist sin. Now, as we get into this part, this is the part starting in verse 14 where it seems that Paul is kind of schizophrenic. What he wants to do, he doesn't do. What he does, he doesn't want to do. And the things that he wants to do that are good or that he winds up doing evil, it gets confusing. I'm not going to lie. And thank the Lord for commas. Now, when I was in school, I hated commas because I never knew where to put them. But without commas, you wouldn't understand what he's saying here. And so when we go through this, we're going to see a little bit about what he's actually saying. Um, So this is the fight of our lives. The fight of our lives is to not do the devil's work, to live for God, to live, you know, a life that is not marked and characterized by sin. So even after we're saved, we're going to have a fight on our hands concerning sin because we still live in the flesh. We still have flesh, so we still have a sinful nature. You know, and if you've been studying the book of Romans with me, um, you might get the idea that we're supposed to live free of sin for the rest of our lives. And yes, we're supposed to, but Paul is also realistic. We're not going to live free of sin. And so he helps us to understand how that fight is happening. He helps us to understand that we can get better, but it is only through the power of God that we get better. So he helps us to understand some of those things. Indeed, sin should be rare in the life of a Christian, but for many of us it is not because we are not aware of the battle that we still must fight. You know, the quickest way to lose a battle is to realize you're not in it. And so for many Christians, we believe that we're not in a fight, but we are. We are in the fight of our lives, and it is against the sin nature that is within us. There's all kinds of problems in the world, but we can't go charging out of the world fixing those problems until we have fixed the problems in our own lives. And so we have to look there first. So if you're wondering why you still struggle with sin, the last part of this passage should really resonate with you. Paul says that he does not even understand his own actions because in his mind he wants to do what is good, but in his flesh he continues to struggle with sin. And we probably can identify with that. We know what's good. We want to do what's good. But then we're weak. Jesus even has this quote where he says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, and we know that the, that the flesh is weak, that, that we want to do what is good, but sometimes we, we struggle with what uh, the flesh wants us to do. So he knows that uh, in his flesh, uh, he does not even desire uh, to do evil, uh, or he knows that in his flesh, he does not even desire to do evil. So when he goes against his flesh, he is obedient to the law. So he wants to, to, to do right, but his flesh wants to do evil. So when he is obedient to, his, to, to what his mind says, he obeys the law. But when he's obedient to what his flesh says, that's when he breaks the law. So he knows that there has been a change in his life all the way down to his soul, but sin still has power in his life. That's what he's saying. He knows he's been changed, but sin still has a power. Not the power that it did have, but it still has a power. It still has some authority in his life. So he knows that. So he recognizes that there is nothing good in his flesh. And this is something we must be aware of. He recognizes there's nothing good in his flesh because even though he wants to do the right thing, he lacks the power to do the right thing. We do have to admit, we can't do good on our own. We must depend on God. On our own, we will always find a way to go the wrong way, to do the wrong thing. So although he wants to do good, he continues to find himself doing evil. He also knows, he states that when he is close to doing good, evil is close to him. And and I will say this, when you are striving to do a good thing, evil is right there. Evil is right there seeking to take away all of that. 
Now, I could give you all kinds of examples, and, and maybe someday soon I'll talk about some examples, but when we're striving to do the right thing, evil is right there, seeking to take away all the power, seeking to take away all the momentum, seeking to take away all the things that God was doing in that. So always be on your guard, especially when you're trying to do what's right. Because you can be blindsided by sin in, in, in a very quick moment here. It's always close to us. So he says that he loves the law of God, but every part of his body fights against God's law to go back to his old sinful ways. And that is very much true for us. We, we are always fighting to go back to our old sinful ways. You know one thing that I do love doing when I have time? I like building things with wood. But if you've ever built many things with wood, one thing that you found is that once there's a bow in a piece of wood, it always wants to go back to that shape, no matter what you do. You can use glue, you can use those liquid nails, which those are amazing, you can use screws, you can use all kinds of stuff, but that wood wants to go back to its old shape. And you know, we're kind of hard-headed, a little like wood. We want to go back to our old shape too. We want to go back to the way that we was. We want to go back to what we used to be able to do without thinking about it, without worrying about it. We want to go back to that same way. And that, that is one thing that Paul recognizes. This is a problem in my life and it could lead to even more trouble. So it's at this point that it seems that he's reached a point of despair. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? Who is there to deliver me? Um, and the reality is, um, Paul's already been delivered at this point, but he's still seeking that deliverance. And that reminds us of this already not yet. Yes, he's saved, but he's not yet what he needs to be. So he's struggling with that. And so in that moment where it could be darkness, he immediately turns to praising God. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he remembers that Jesus is his deliverer. And even though he's going to continue to struggle with sin, Jesus is his deliverer. And that's what makes Romans chapter 8 verse 1 so powerful is that he immediately states that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So when we consider our modern situation, uh, one thing that we tend to hear people say is that we have to do better. People say, do better, do better. Um, we, uh, if we keep saying that we need to do better without recognizing that uh, the power that is required to do better will continue to fail. We will not simply do better on our own. We need the power of God to do better. Uh, we must admit that sin is a problem and that we can't overcome it on our own. Uh, we will not be able to live righteously until we submit to the will of the righteous one. And so as we finish this up, the main idea that I want to present to you is that we as Christians already saved, we as Christians will not live a righteous life so long as we hang on to parts of our old life. If we have old ambitions and desires, if we have old habits, if we have old things in our lives that we've not given over to the Lord, we will not live a life that honors God. We've got to surrender it all. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he gave his all. And so that is what the Bible teaches us is that there is an exchange. His life for our life. If we had not been the beneficiaries of the death of Jesus, we would die ourselves. The cross that he died on, that punishment, that wrath of God was, was aimed at us. But he stood in the way. He took it for us. But we must surrender our lives to him. Every bit of it. And I'm talking to Christians too because, you know what, as soon as we give it away, we want to take it back. We want to take back control. We want to continue to do how we were doing. We can't see how it would work to give away our whole lives. But let me tell you, at the end of the day, you can depend on your logic. But your logic got you to the point that only 
God supernaturally intervening into time space history by sending his son to die on a cross for your sins, that was the only way you could be saved. Your logic is going to continue to get you in situations just like that. But depending on the Lord, that is where your salvation comes from. But we've got to give it all the way over to him. We will not have any other way. So if we continue to indulge in the flesh, we will continue to serve the law of sin. But when we live a life that is submissive to him, we will live a life of victory. Again, I don't mean to tell you that we are going to be sinless. We will not be perfect, but we can be better when we submit to God completely. That means giving over things that you wanted to hang on to. That means getting rid of the dreams and the desires and the things that you hope for and let God direct your steps. The reality is what He wants for your life is better than what you want for your life. But that takes faith. That takes faith in trusting Him because we think we know what we want, but we don't know what's best for us. Sin has no place in the believer. But that will not stop us, or that will not stop it from trying to find room for itself. Sin will fight its way into our lives. It will always try to do that. Even after we're saved, um, it's going to take an extraordinary effort not to sin. But it's not that we're going to be fighting the sin itself. We're going to be fighting ourselves so that we can submit to the Lord. That's the important thing. We've got to be totally surrendered to Him. That's the only way to have power over sin. So when we look out at the world and we see people doing sinful things, we have to understand they aren't surrendered to Jesus. When you look in your own life and you see sin in your life, that's a symptom. It's like a runny nose. Why do you get a runny nose? Well, there's no sickness that's a runny nose. That is a symptom of something more, right? Well, when we sin, that's a symptom of something deeper. And the deeper problem is there's an area of our life that we haven't submitted to Jesus. Or it's something that we did submit, but we took it back. That's where the power lies, is giving it over to Him again. Giving our lives over to Jesus, following after Him, not looking for our own path in life and not looking for our own goals, but trusting after Him. So this morning, I'm speaking what I hope is to believers when I say we have been saved. But we are not yet completely conformed to the image of Christ. So we must make a daily effort to surrender to Him. That's the point. So if, if we want to be followers of Jesus, if we want to live a life that's not marked by sin, if we want to be the kinds of people that can speak out into the world and have the world listen to us, we've got to be credible. The only way for us to be credible is to be surrendered to Jesus. Otherwise, we'll still be stuck in sin. We'll still be just like the rest of the people. You see, God gave us the power to overcome sin when he put Jesus in our hearts. But we only have that power when we surrender to him. We can't run the show and then think that we're going to be able to resist sin. It won't happen because when we're close to doing good, evil is close to us as well. Jesus has to be in control of our lives for us to resist that sin. So trust Him and surrender to Him. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. We thank You so much for being our Savior. We know that we would be lost without Jesus. We know uh, that there would be no hope for our souls. But even though many of us would say right now that we are Christians, that we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we know that we still have flaws. We still do things that are wrong. And I pray that you help each of us right now to commit in our hearts that we will surrender to you. 
We will surrender every part of our lives to You. We will trust only You. We will not listen to the world and its suggestions or its wisdom or its teaching. We will look to You. What does Your Word say? That's what we believe. Pray that You give us the strength to follow up on that commitment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.